Well, uh, happy new year. Uh, happy 2023. I feel like uh, every year when we get to new year, I feel like we just did this. And I think part of it's getting older, but the years seem to go by faster. And I'm always kind of like, I can't believe it's another one and how we get here. And so uh, just curious as we, uh, you know, here we are meeting on January 1st. Uh, how many of you have decided to make some New Year's resolutions or things that you try to do or maybe make a little list of things that you want to do better in this year? And, and so I just think about that. Is that something that you do? Uh, or maybe the better question as we gather is, is that something that we should do? Is that something we should be doing as believers, uh, making different resolutions, or what part should that maybe play in our lives and as we seek to grow? Is that wise? And uh, I think the answer is that it can be, and uh, it probably is to have things that we're making goals and thinking about and, and seeking to grow. Uh, we say here all the time that our main uh, kind of banner over everything at Church of the Apostles is we want to make disciples that make disciples. Uh, it's actually written on the wall out there when you when you come in, making disciples that make disciples. And I often define that when we say that is is discipleship is growing in obedience to Jesus in every area of our lives under the power and direction of the Holy Spirit. And so we're a work in progress and we're continuing to grow and we want to be growing in obedience. And so it kind of stands when we start to think about the new year and things that we want to do and new goals that we have goes hand in hand with this idea of discipleship. Or the idea of sanctification. Uh, Dan just read for us Romans chapter 6. And Paul uses that term a couple times where he talks about sanctification in Romans chapter 6. And really, if you stop and think about it, discipleship and sanctification are kind of like two sides of the same coin. Uh, if, if we're saying discipleship is growing in obedience to Jesus in every area of our life, uh, I think a helpful definition of sanctification is progressively disconnecting from sin in our life that we're continuing to move away from the things that are sinful and moving towards God. So we're growing in obedience in our discipleship and we're moving away from sin or things that are destructive. And that's part of what it looks like. Sanctification and discipleship go hand in hand together. And so in my mind, it makes some sense to think about uh, some goals that you might want to set for the year and the way that you think about that and how do I want to grow in that obedience and what are areas that I need to disconnect from in my life that maybe are not what God has called me to. And so today, uh, really today and next week are kind of one-off sermons at the beginning of the year. Uh, in three weeks on the 15th, we'll go back to our series, Falling Through Jesus's Life, and we'll be stepping into year three of Jesus's earthly ministry. And so we'll begin that in a couple weeks. But today we're kind of a one-off in Romans chapter six. And I want us to think about this idea of growing, of discipleship and sanctification. And as we think about the new year, kind of how we think about going about that. And Romans chapter six is really helpful for us in that pursuit. It tells us a lot of things that are very helpful. And so the way that we're going to look at it this morning, three things that I want you to see here in Romans chapter six. The first is what it tells us about who we now are in Jesus. And it's really important for us to see what God says about who we are, that he is the one that is defining our identity and who we are in Christ. And so that's the first thing, who we are in Jesus. Secondly, as we consider who we now are in Jesus, what are the things that no longer go with living up into our identity in Christ? Or maybe another way to say it is, what are maybe the things that we need to lay aside? Things that we need to set down in our life that no longer go with who we are in Jesus. So that's the second thing. What do we need to set aside? And then lastly, I want us just to think about what are the things that do go with our identity in Jesus? 
What are maybe the things that we need to pick up or we need to be more engaged in in our life, right? So who we are in Jesus, the things that we need to lay down and maybe the things that we need to pick up or be more engaged in. So let's just start with what it says here about who you are in Christ and what that means for us. And so before I do that, this is kind of a one-off sermon in Romans chapter six. We're parachuting in kind of to Romans. And so let me set the context for you in the book of Romans. It's really important when we read the Bible, we come to any text that we're reading it in context, that we understand kind of what came before and what came after and the flow of thought. That's particularly vital when you read any of Paul's epistles, right? The apostle Paul wrote Romans to the church in Rome. And it's important because he's very, very logical in his thinking and the way he presents things. And so real quickly, 90 second overview of Romans one to five, how we get to chapter six. If you read the book of Romans chapters one, two, and the first two thirds of chapter three is basically saying that we're all sinners and that we're in desperate need. And it doesn't matter if you grew up in the church or you grew up away from the church. Uh, If you had nothing to do with the things of God growing up, your conscience still bears witness and you are guilty before God and you know it in your conscience. Or if you do have God's word, it clearly shows us God's holiness and where we fall short. And so Paul makes that argument very clearly in chapters one, two, in the first half of chapter three. You get to the, the last third of chapter three and we have what we call kind of the Romans road. The picture that shows us the glory of who Jesus is and what it's done for us and that we are saved by grace through faith and what Christ does for us. And so there in Romans chapter three, it says, for we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And so the beautiful picture there of the gospel at the end of Romans chapter three, you are saved by grace through faith, what Christ has done for you. Chapter four, he then says, that's always been the case. God's always saved people by putting their faith in what God's going to do and receiving that grace. And he points to Abraham and he says, even Abraham was saved by grace through faith. And he points to Genesis chapter 15 and verse six, that God made this promise to Abraham and Abraham believed God and God counted it to him as righteousness, right? Abraham was made righteous by putting his faith in what God was going to do. And he says, that's always been the case. Then you get to chapter five and it says we now have peace with God through Jesus Christ, that he's undoing the work of our sinful ancestors. He says just as sin entered through the world through Adam and it spread to all men. Now in Jesus, we can be reconciled to God and it's all because of what he's done. And so Paul makes all that argument through the first five chapters of Romans and then he gets to Romans chapter six and there's a question that's kind of rattling around in the background of the church. And it's this, well, if we're saved by grace, through faith, it's all what God does. It's all Jesus is doing for us. Then can we just live however we want? We can just do whatever we want now because it's all God and it's all grace through faith. And so he asked that question. He asked a rhetorical question at the beginning of chapter six. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And he says, by no means. How can you who died to sin still live in it? And then he's going to make his argument where we're going to pick up here of what he's saying about who we are. And he's saying, no, you can't live that way because that's not who you are anymore. That's not who you are in Jesus. And so then he starts to unfold this in chapter six. And so I want us to think about that together. So who are we then now in Jesus when we put our faith in him and we've come to him? And he says 
to us that it's this very important part of that we are dead to sin and we are alive to Jesus, that we're a new creation. And it's so important that we hear what he says here about who we are. It's so important that we let God speak over us what is true about us in Christ. So often we can get into error. We can get into heresy. We can get into all sorts of bad things because we're not letting God stand over us in those ways. And it's important that we hear that over us. Uh, for years, I've been coaching basketball. I coach basketball from before my boys were born. And then as they've grown up, I've, I've had the joy of coaching each one of them in park and rec basketball. Coaching high school and JV and, and park and rec and all in between. But park and rec basketball is a little different because it's, it's the kid's first kind of step into basketball, right? It's not a school team. Everybody plays. Everybody gets playing time, all those things. But one of the things that I've tried to do in coaching park and rec basketball with my boys as they've been growing up is since everybody plays, right, sports becomes very competitive very quickly, right? You have your starters, and then you have the other guys that don't get to play as much oftentimes. The starters are your best players. That's true in basketball or football or whatever sport there is. You put your best players in. Park and rec has rules that everybody has to play, and everybody has to get playing time. And so one of the things that I've tried to do when I coach basketball, when I coach park and rec basketball, is throughout the season, I make sure that every kid on my team starts at least one or two games. doesn't matter how good they are or where they are, but I pull them aside and I tell them, so you're going to start today. You're one of the starters today. And I want you to get out there and you need to play hard and you need to help us and you need to do these things. And the reason I do that is, well, one, they all have to play and Park and Rex is teaching them and all those kind of things. But I also want them to have that vision of what they could be, right? I want them to understand today you're one of our starters and we need you out there doing that. And what it does and what I've seen happening, little boys' faces, is it's kind of like, okay, coach, I got this today. And they get really excited to go out there. And suddenly it's like, yes, I'm going to do this. And you see it kind of transform in the way that they see themselves. And I think part of what Paul is doing is he's reminding us here who we now are in Jesus. He says, how can you who are dead to sin still live in it? You're no longer that. That's not who you are in Jesus. You're no longer dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. But you're now alive in Jesus. And he starts to tell us what is now true of us. And he begins to speak the truth of who we are in Christ. And so look at what he says here in verse 6. And seven, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin for one who has died has been set free from sin. And now if we've died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. And he's saying, you're no longer this. You're dead to sin and you're now alive to Jesus. And he starts to tell us what is true of us, that we are a new creation, that we now operate fundamentally different when you put your faith in Christ, right? The God of the universe has come to do for you what you could never do for yourself. And you put your faith and trust in him. You transfer your trust from yourself to him and the very spirit of God, the person of the Holy Spirit comes and lives in and with you and opens your eyes and gives you a new lens to see all things. And you're a new creation. You know, we always read this text almost always when we do baptism here and we celebrate baptism let's read verse four here where it says we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the father we too might walk in a newness of life 
that you go down into the water and this is who you were, but now you come up in Jesus and you are a new creation. You have a new engine, so to speak. You have a, a, a new ceiling where you were limited before in the ways that you saw things in a very selfish way, ignoring God and the world he created. You now are open to the truth of who God is and who you are in his world. And you are a new creation. And it's so important for us to see that. I was just reading this week, uh, rereading. I, I read it many, many years ago. And to be honest, I have forgotten just about all of it. But it's been wonderful to read it again. It's a book by Eugene Peterson called Run With Horses. If you don't know who Eugene Peterson was, he, uh, he passed away a couple years ago. But he was a, a faithful fat pastor for 50 plus years. Uh, and brilliant, godly man that loved the Lord. Uh, some of his books have been such a wonderful encouragement to me in my life. And I was reading uh, in Run With Horses, he, he tells of living on a lake in Montana. And he's talking about sitting on his back porch in Montana, and he's looking out over this beautiful lake. And he said, I would sit there in the mornings, and I would watch the birds. He said, I'd watch the swallows. And the swallows would come out, and they would... They would dive down on the water and they would collect insects to go back to feed their babies. And he said, I'd watch this process over and over. And over time, they would go back to the the nest. And then a few days later, the babies are now sitting out on the branches. And so he said, there's this huge branch hanging out over the lake. And three of the baby birds are sitting on it. And some mother's feeding them over and over. He said, then finally, the mother, after a couple hours, comes and lands next to her three babies that are sitting on the branch. And he said, he watched as the as the mother bird started to kind of move them to the end of the branch, sliding over, kind of bumping her own babies until they get to the end of the branch and one by one they fall off. She scoots them down to the end and they fall off. He said the first one falls from about four or five feet above the water and as it falls right before it hits the water, it takes off and starts to fly. And so the first one and then the second one and then the third one, as he watches, he says the third one gets scooted to the very end, is about to fall and slides under the branch and doesn't let go. And clings to the branch with its talons. And he says, the mother bird hops over and starts to peck her baby's talons. <laughs> Until finally, the, the, the baby bird can't hold anymore because of the pain of being pecked by his own mother. And he lets go and he falls. And he too, right before he hits the water, takes off and flies. And he tells that story in his book. And I was thinking about that this week. In light of this passage and what it says about who we are. Why would the mother bird do that to her own baby? He's he's scared holding on to the bottom. And it's like, no, you're going. Because the mother knows that that baby is made to fly. It's not made to sit on the branch and hold on to it in fear. It's made to go and soar. And what Paul's saying here is who you now are in Jesus is that you are dead to sin and alive to Christ and he has made you for so much more. That's no longer who you are. You are a new creation in Jesus. And it is so important that we see that. It's so important that you know that that is true. It's so important that you get that summary statement of what he says here in verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And so the first thing here is that you are a new creation. God has made you in his image and now he's redeemed you and he's opened your eyes and he now lives in and with you and he has wonderful plans for you. 
So the second thing I want us to consider in light of that is as a new creation, what are the things that no longer go with who you now are? What no longer is in accord with what you are made to be? And he tells us here, there's things that kind of hold us back. There's things that keep us like that bird clinging to the branch. When God has this beautiful picture for us and we're afraid and in fear and we hold on and there's things that we turn to. And it tells us right here the things that are holding us back. Look at what it says in verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. And so he says you're a new creation that's now spiritually alive. And you have in you this new way of operating and the way in which you see the world. The old way in which you used to operate before the grace of God came into your life and opened your eyes to see those things as you operated in your flesh. The Bible often refers to as your flesh. Your flesh is seeing yourself as the center of the world. Ignoring God and the world he created, operating on your passions and the things of your flesh, the things that you think will satisfy you the most and kind of being inwardly focused. And then God opens you to the truth that the world doesn't revolve around you, that it's actually about God and his glory. And he's made you for that. But what happens is even when you become a believer and you're freed and your eyes begin to see that. Because there's so many habits ingrained in your flesh, you can easily go back to your old way of thinking. Even though you've been freed, and even though you are a new creation, and even though those things have been opened to you, it's easy for you to go back to those. And so in verse 12, it says, Let sin not reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. That if you continue to submit yourself to those things and you continue to operate in your flesh, then you go back to those things and you're controlled by your passions instead of the glory of what God has for you. It's like someone who's been freed from prison but just wants to go back. You know, sadly, that actually happens a lot. I I don't know how many of you have ever seen the movie uh, Shawshank Redemption. Uh, It's one of my favorite movies. It's It's a movie about a guy who goes to prison for something he didn't do. And then he kind of makes this life in prison and does a lot of good things. And there's a whole bunch to it. But about two-thirds of the way through the movie, there's an older guy that's a character in the movie. And he gets let out. Right? He, he gets paroled as like an old man, like in his 80s. And he gets out. And, and they do this little kind of uh, vignette in the movie about how he's miserable. And he doesn't know how to function because his whole life has been in prison. And he talks about how he can't do anything without somebody giving him permission to do it. And what it shows, and it's real sad in the movie, is the story of this guy that can't ever make that transition because he's been so used to the slavery of prison his entire life that he never really gets freed. What happens is people will go back to prison because they don't know how to live in freedom. And that's exactly what happens to us when we continue to go back to our old way of thinking and living when God has freed us to something new. We go back to our old way of operating. We become like that bird that's clinging to the branch when God's going, no, 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 I've made you to fly. And we're going, no, no, I don't know about that. And so I'm going to go back to my old way of doing things. And when we do that, it's a disaster. 
Look at what he says in verse 20 and 21. He says, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. He's saying you could kind of do whatever you wanted because you weren't thinking about these things and you didn't see it in that way. But then look at what he says in verse 21. But what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. He says you used to be able, before you were a believer, your conscience wasn't weighed down by all these things because you were ignoring all this and you weren't seeing it and you were doing whatever you wanted, but you were miserable. And those things lead to death because they're not what you're created for. So why would you now, as a new creation, go back to operating that way? That's insanity. Why would you do that? In fact, the Bible tells us. It gives us warnings about what the... Look, the Bible gives us really kind of almost gross examples. I'm going to warn you, but this is completely biblical. Right? Proverbs. What is a man who returns to his sin like? Like a dog to his vomit. You know how gross that is? It's a pretty vivid picture, is it not? I have four dogs and I've watched them try to eat their vomit before. So it's pretty gross if you've not seen that. But it's saying that's what we're like when we go back to our old way of thinking. God has freed you in Jesus to this new life. He's freed you to live in this new way. Why would you go back to that type of thinking? Why would you go back to operating in your flesh? Tim Keller says it this way in his commentary on Romans. He says, if you don't obey the law of God, you become a slave to selfishness, to lust, to bitterness, to pride, materialism, worry, drivenness, fear. The specific enslaving sins depend on whatever particular bottom line you have offered yourself to instead of God. For example, if you're enslaved to approval, you will constantly experience self-pity, envy, hurt, feelings, and inadequacy. If you're enslaved to success, you will experience drivenness and fatigue and worry and fear and so on. And then listen to the way he summarizes. Anything you worship besides God promises much but delivers worse than nothing. Right? That's exactly what verse 21 says, is it not? That's exactly what Paul is saying here in verse 21. The fruit you were getting at the time from the things in which you are now ashamed. What were you getting? He says you were getting death. It promises much, but it delivers less than nothing. And so, so often we go back to our old way of thinking. We pick up these old things and act like they're going to give us the promise of what we're looking for when we know they're not. And yet we so easily can slide back into that. We can go back to thinking in our flesh rather than in the spirit. Looking at things through the lens of our selfishness, through the lens of the freedom that we now have in Jesus. And so I want you to think about in your own life right now, what are the ways in which you're going back and picking up some of those things? What do you do in your life that you're, you're going back and you're ignoring what God has told you and you're going back to your old way of thinking? You're operating in your flesh rather than in the spirit. And so maybe today you need to lay down some different things. Maybe it is materialism. Maybe you are living in such a way that your life is ordered around trying to accumulate a whole lot of things. And that's leading you to overwork. And it's leading you to get your identity from what you do. And it's leading you to believing the lie that happiness will come in the stuff that you have. 
And so maybe today you need to lay that down. Recognizing that your joy will never fully come from the stuff that you own. It's impossible. It seems to promise much, but it delivers less than nothing. Maybe today you need to lay down lust and sexual desire in your life. Maybe you've bought into the lie that things will be great and it will be perfect and ultimate meaning will come from chasing moments of fleeting pleasure. That is a lie. That's like drinking out of a fountain or or a cup that has a hole in the bottom. No matter how much you drink, you will always be thirsty. It cannot give you what it seems to offer. Maybe today you need to lay down escapism. Instead of looking for ultimate meaning and mindless entertainment, looking for ultimate meaning in alcohol or drugs or things that alter your mind to escape from the reality of what you're dealing with in your life that will never, ever give you what you're hoping it will give you. That's not who you are. In Jesus, that's not you. It's not what you're created for. And if you turn to those things, it's going to seem to offer something, but it's going to deliver less than nothing, and it leads to death. So what is it today, the first day of a new year of 2023, that you go, I need to lay some of these things down? Ask God to show you what those things are. And as he shows you what those things are, confess your sin. Go to a brother or sister in Christ and go, I'm really struggling with not believing this is what's true. Would you pray with me? Would you encourage me? Would you walk with me in this? I don't want to be the bird that's hanging to the bottom of the branch. I don't want you. I don't want me. I don't want our body of believers. I don't want anyone I know to settle for so far less than what God offers he offers us so much more. And so the second thing is, what do you need to lay down today? Ask God to show you that. But then the last part here, what do you need to pick up? Or what do you maybe need to be more engaged in? And so look at what it says over and over and over again in this text. Verse 11. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Second half of verse 13, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Look at verse 17 and 18, but thanks be to God. Those who were once slave to sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin, having become slaves of righteousness. And then look at verse 22. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit that you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. And so hear what he's saying there over and over. You're dead to sin. You're alive to God. And so make your life focus and and center around who God is and what he's done for you. Submit your your members, that's your body, your thinking, your life, where you go, the things that you give your time to, submit your members to slaves of righteousness. 
That is, take the things that God says is true and the things that we should be giving our time to and then seek to follow him in those things. And that's what he's telling us here. Begin to take everything captive that he is your creator, the God of the universe that has saved you. Begin to submit everything in your life to him. And he says, when you do, it's better. It leads to the fruit of sanctification and its end eternal life. On one hand, you have you go back and you do the old way and you function in your flesh. And he says that offers a lot and brings you less than nothing. The ends of that is death. But submit your members to righteousness and its sanctification and eternal life. It should be an easy choice. Life or death. Misery and heartache are the glory of who God is and what he's created you for. So what does that look like? How do we do that? What is he actually telling us here? I think there's a very practically helpful thing here in verse 17. He says, thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Take that second part of what he says there. The standard of teaching to which you were committed. Paul uses this kind of language over and over in his all his letters. He's writing to the early church and he's reminding them. And he's saying this commitment to the gospel, the truth of who God is and what he's done for you. You've heard this message and that's the doorway into faith. You're putting your faith in God and what he's done for us in Jesus and being committed to that truth. And so we say here all the time about being gospel fluent understanding the truth of who you are in God and what he's done for you in Jesus and letting that rule and reign over everything. And I want you to think about when you become committed to that and understanding that and turning that over in your mind, what that does. When you go back and the things that you put your faith in are the things in which you, you submit yourself to slavery again, where you start to think about uh, you're enslaved to approval And what people think of you and all the negative things that come with that. You let the gospel stand over you and you say, no, 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 your approval is not dependent on what people think of you. The God of the universe who created and made you has redeemed you and he loves you completely and totally. And you can rest in that and you let the gospel stand over. And you go, and when that comes and when that temptation is there, you turn and you go, no, no, this is who I am in Jesus. And he says, you become committed to that teaching and that truth, the heart of the gospel and what that means. But you've got to understand how the gospel fluency actually works. And it's right there in verse 17. Look at what he says right before that. You were once slaves to sin, but you've become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were once committed. And this is so important. There's two ways you're going to hear what I'm saying today. Either you're going to leave and go, yeah, he just said that I need to stop being a terrible sinner and I need to try harder and I need to do some things and I need to make a list. New Year's resolution, I got to write these things down and I got to do them better. And that's the deceitfulness of our heart that makes us hear that from you do these things so that God accepts you. That is not what I'm saying. That is not what it's saying here. He tells you that you're becoming obedient from the heart to the standard of the teaching to which you are committed. What does that mean? Obedient from the heart. That you see who God is. And yes, you see your sin. But then you see the glory of his grace and what he's done for you. And it begins to change your heart. 
you recognize how desperately wicked you are, but how gracious and loving and how great God is. And he begins to change you. And so it's so important because it's easy for us to slip into thinking. And I'm going to tell you, you need to read your Bible. You need to be praying. You need to be in community with other believers. You need to be confessing your sins one to another. We need to be walking together and helping each other in these things. But if that is a checklist of things that you feel like you have to do so that God will accept you, you don't understand the gospel. The gospel is God already loves you. He's already got you in Jesus. And when you behold his face, when you see how glorious and how beautiful and how wonderful he is, it melts your heart. Obedience from the heart that goes, I get to do this because God loves me so much. I get to now live this way because I have a new engine, a new way of living because of his spirit in me. And it's him doing this and I get to be part of it. And he's made me for this. He's made me not to cling to that branch, but to fly. And it's only when you see those things in that light. And so as you think about this year and you think about a list or you think about the things that you want to do. Or the things that you're going to be better about. And you start to turn to those things. I would just remind you of this. My list. What I'm going to, I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to read through the Bible this year. And I'm going to pray. When I meet with people, when I go to lunch with people, when people come here to the church, when I go to visit people, I'm going to stop and I'm going to pray for them before I go. I'm going to ask God that He would move. That I would see him working. When I open my Bible, I'm going to read my Bible, but I'm going to say, God, would you please reveal yourself to me? That I can see you more fully. Would you show me what it looks like to obey you today for your glory? I'm not going to read my Bible with a checklist of, well, I read those three chapters today. What good is that? I want you to read your Bible so that you see the face of God. That the God of the universe has spoken to you. That he's told you who he is and what he's like. That we would come to him in those ways. And so when we think about what it tells us, what are we going to pick up and what are the things that we're going to do? Seek his faith. Second Corinthians chapter 3. It says, now the Lord is spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is spirit. Do you hear that? Do you hear how you're transformed from one degree of glory to another? You behold his face. And so my prayer for all of us, my resolution for the I want to seek God's face. I want you to seek his face. I want you to take the things in your life that are going back to your old flesh and ask God. Say it. Tell him. Claim the promises that he's given you. That this is not who you are anymore. I don't live this way. 
that God has so much more for me. And I pray that that would be what is true of each of us in 2023. So would you pray with me? God, we thank you for the glorious good news of the gospel. We thank you that you have done for us what we can never, ever do for ourselves. And that in so doing, you have come and you have united us with the creator of the universe. You have united us with yourself as our creator and our redeemer and our sustainer. I pray that in the coming year, that each and every day we would want to be so intimately linked with you in everything. That we would seek your face in all things. That when we are tempted to believe lies, the selfishness of our flesh, the deceitfulness of our hearts, that we would let your word stand over us in all things. That we would continue to seek your face. We would continue to follow hard after you in all things. And it would be for your honor and your glory. And we pray all of it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.